Got it. Nice. Easy peasy. You made it look so simple. I made it look so simple, right? Yeah. I want this one to be a keeper. Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Aaron Flores, broadcasting from the People's Republic of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. We are the show that brings you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally, with a global perspective, and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains, transit, adventures, and life hacks. And today, stopping. Or not stopping. Idaho style. <laughs> Idaho style. That's right. Yes. Uh, we've got Bjorn Warlow and Ray Thomas here in the studio. Thank you, gentlemen, both so much for joining. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah. And uh, a, a quick note to our listeners as well. We are re-recording this episode because we lost a file two weeks ago. Um, so both Bjorn and Ray are being incredibly generous with their time. So Yay. thank you both so much. We very much appreciate your um, understanding with that. Yeah. This one will even be better. Yeah, I, I especially appreciate it because I'm going to be present for this recording. This is true. Yeah, you had a you had an airport emergency. Yes. Well, we're all here. We're all in the studio. Um, starting with Bjorn, perhaps, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do in relation to the Idaho Stop and a little bit about what that is in the context of some changes coming up here in Oregon? Yeah, so uh, my name is Bjorn Warlow, and... Um, a little over a decade ago, uh, kind of got the idea to, uh, of what the Idaho style stop was um, from reading a newspaper article. And after I had moved to Portland, I was seeing a lot of uh, the stop sign things happening in Lads Edition. And it didn't seem like a very good use of resources to me to be doing all this policing um, in the place that was really one of the safest places for cyclists to ride in Portland. Um, and so having talked to the city a little bit about maybe trying to just get the stop signs taken out at Lads Edition, and that didn't seem like a possibility, we decided to start trying to maybe just stop having stop signs mean stop for cyclists and instead mean yield. Mm -hmm. And um, Ray, how have you been involved? Well, I've been involved in legislative efforts uh, for Oregon laws relating to bicycles for decades. And uh, I've been a lawyer here for 40 years, and this was something that uh, came onto my radar uh, through Bourne's efforts and his determination to put this idea forth inspired me, and I decided that it would actually lead to improvement for Oregon cyclists, not only on the streets, but also in court. With the Idaho Stop, uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about sort of what it is, if anybody's unfamiliar? Yeah, so in, in Idaho, in the early 80s, um, there was um, just kind of a rule change made. It wasn't even really like a legislative effort um, to be able to, for cyclists as they're coming down a street, you come to a stop sign and there's no cross traffic, there's no one else in the intersection, that rather than having to come to a complete stop and then start again, you could just treat that stop sign like a yield sign. Um, and so this doesn't change anything about the right-of-way laws. If there's a you know another road user, like a pedestrian crossing the street, for example, uh, when you come to the intersection, you still have to come to a stop. But when the intersection's empty and there's no reason to stop, um, you don't have to. So it doesn't just mean that we can just blow through a stop sign? Yeah, that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the anti-Idaho-style talking point. But yeah, right. that's not the case at all. 
Nice. Um, and there is sort of one difference that we had talked about last time, uh, but that I wanted to cover as well. In Idaho, it, you can do the same for a stop light as well as a stop sign, if if I'm remembering correctly. Um, it's not exactly the same. Okay. So um, in the in the later part of the 80s, um, they were seeing that they had a problem at a lot of their stoplights where um, I think we've all experienced that you ride up on your bike and you're clearly not triggering the signal, right? Oh, yeah. And so yeah. some of the triggers have gotten better. And the ones around Portland are actually pretty good. They even often have the little blue light to tell you that you're in the right spot. Um, but so a, a state trooper in Idaho and a Republican, I think, state senator, uh, got together and changed their law to allow that if you uh, came to a complete stop at the stoplight and there was no other traffic, that you could then proceed through. But you do have to come to a complete stop at the stoplight. Um, and in in past years, we kind of tried to include something like that. But um, this time around, I think it was just viewed as being cleaner to just do the stop sign part of the law. Mm. And Ray, I think you can talk a little bit about Oregon already kind of has their own version of the stoplight part of it. Yeah, we've got a law that allows us to proceed if the light is not turn, turning green for us. Um, and it applies both to us and motorcycles and probably any other vehicle, too. But that's a little different from the Idaho. And uh, the Idaho version, um, I think, is a uh, an evolution, and it's my dream that someday we'll have Idaho style at stop lights too but not for now gotcha you mentioned uh previous cycles in legislature uh tell us a little bit about sort of the the trial and tribulations that this effort has undergone in the amount of time that you both have been working to accomplish it Uh, what is what is the time frame first off like how long has this been because i know this has been kind of a labor of love for for you guys so so i i found out about it originally in a in 2003, in an okay. article in the Daily Barometer that was a pretty anti-bicycling article, actually, but <laughs> I had never heard of it before, and uh, and the article talked about it, and so it kind of planted the seed for me. But I think the first time we went down to talk to the legislature was probably in 2006. Um, I, I had kind of started a little group of people up here. We met at the Lucky Lab and talked about what we were going to do, and didn't really know anything about how you actually pass a law, but uh, decided we'd go down to Salem and, and try to talk to some people. And so Megan Sennett and I uh, went down to Salem and we met a few legislators. We met Floyd Przansky, who was the kind of the godfather of the Idaho style in, in Oregon, I'd say. And we met Jason Atkinson, who was a Republican senator who's pretty into bikes that was um, supportive. Um, and he's actually about to start running for Congress right now for Greg Walden's seat. Um, so we got down there and what we found out was that it was way too late in the session to do anything that year. Um, but that was when I met Scott Bricker and he asked me if I'd like to be on the BTA legislative committee because I seemed interested in, in generally in working on, on bike law. And that's how I met Ray. Um, And the BTA is the bicycle transportation Alliance now called formally, uh, as it's the street trust. And so then I guess that that next session, Ray was when you, you really got involved. I, thought that it was a good idea and felt like um, it was actually something that was possible because I had learned that there had been a longitudinal study uh, by the University of California School of Public Health to determine what effect the Idaho stop had had on injury and death rates for uh, vulnerable users in Idaho. 
And what we found was that it had actually reduced the number of people who were hurt, which we could point to as a solid safety reason as in addition to common sense and kind of moving the law forward. And I felt like it was something maybe its time had come. Um, When Bourne first heard about it in 2003, what he learned about was that there had been a failed effort and we decided to try to revive it with his good organizing work and see if we could make a go of it. Yeah, spoiler alert, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, like, what what uh, what did you learn? Because I know we talked a little bit about in the last uh, recording, and I just wanted to make sure we capture that as well, like, the sort of how that whole process works, because it, it's it's... So one of those things that like seems simple from the outside, but for folks that might not know a lot about like how the legislative sessions work in Oregon and sort of like what things are important, I was really surprised to learn uh, what you felt were some of the more key aspects of having successful legislation. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I never knew before we started this is that most of the laws that get passed are actually written before the legislature meets. They're They're all kind of they're working on stuff before it starts to really be official. And so there's a lot of deadlines. Like there's deadlines by which you have to have introduced legislation and there's deadlines by which it has to have made it out of a committee and then get voted across to either from the house to the Senate or from the Senate to the house. Um, so the next time around we were, we were ready. We had our, we had written a bill um, as a legislative committee and we'd found sponsors to introduce it um, and got it in. Um, I think that was the year when, we had the the hearing and and kind of the day of the hearing there was a big uh news article and it got on Lars Larson's show and Ooh. and so we we attracted a lot of really negative attention yeah. kind of the day of the hearing mm. um the other thing that happened was that we maybe didn't do a good enough job of reaching out to uh individual organizations around the state we got a little bit blindsided by there was one particular person who was into vehicular cycling uh in Eugene who kind of wrote an, uh, an anti, um, Idaho style, uh, letter. Um, but it made it appear that it was coming from the whole greater Eugene area riders association, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people in, in gears, uh, which is what they call that group down there were kind of upset that that happened. It didn't really follow their process. But one thing that we learned is that if, if any major bike organization is seen as opposing, uh, the legislation, it's, it's really not going to go anywhere. You've got to kind of have everybody on, on board. That's uh, one of the um, problems uh, in the left, actually, uh, and that is that when you're attempting to c- come out with something that is a new idea, um, we uh, many times will have... Uh, I guess it's factions within our community that um, make it so that our efforts to push something new forward are undercut. And the vehicular cyclist movement is not something today that is as vital uh, as it used to be. But for some time before bicycle infrastructure changes, like separated bike lanes and bicycle lanes, even bicycle lanes became widespread, uh, there was a a, a considerable uh, group of bicycle riders, many of whom were involved in the bicycle clubs across America, 
who felt that the safest way for us to proceed was to uh, always have the same laws and the same practices as other vehicles, including motor vehicles. And it was felt like, just to give you an example, that it was through the efforts of uh, vehicular cyclists that we bicyclists were able to retain our right to share the road and this, be in the same lane and as motor vehicles. And to have vehicle. the rights of the full lane, right? Right, to yeah. have the right to, to have... Uh, to share the lane and, when necessary, to take the full lane. And I think that the vehicular cycling movement has somewhat um, become dated because with so many infrastructure changes like separated bike lanes and bike boulevards and so many of the other innovative things that have occurred, uh, vehicular cycling just isn't really... Uh, a widespread practice that is followed by anybody. And in fact, uh, what we're finding is that as the world progresses, um, separate does not mean unequal when it comes to, for example, separated bike lanes. Hmm. So we're not, we really don't have this, um, this uh, dissent within our bicycle advocacy community like we used to. Gotcha. I was reading um, a study in regards to vehicular cycling. Do you know if it's still true that, statistically speaking, the safest place to ride is in the center of the lane if there's no like bike lane present? Well, I can tell you that um, I'm not certain about that. Okay. But if there's no bike lane present and you're not slowing down traffic proceeding at the normal speed of traffic, you're within your rights to ride in the center of the lane. And the fact is that bicyclists and motorcyclists have known for years that the way to make ourselves most visible and, for example, the way to make a safe left turn is not from the far right side of the lane but to move over into what we might call the left tire track, for example, to make a left turn. Mm -hmm. However, um, my uh, brothers and sisters who were wearing uh, the you know, basically we have a right to take the lane t-shirts. Um, it's correct. We have the right to take the lane, but only when there's nobody being slowed down proceeding at the normal speed of traffic by us doing that. If we're slowing folks down and we're not moving as far to the right as practical, unless we're in a bike lane, um, really that's a violation of the law. Interesting. I I did not see it that way. I did not interpret the law that way. I would say that if you took a yeah. poll of bicycle riders who are advocates like us, you would find that most of us would uh, fail to pass that test on a multiple choice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> I think you're right about that. <laughs> and actually, uh. just uh, take a moment here since we're, we're kind of talking about misconceptions. So one of the things that happened when we passed Idaho Style was that a lot of newspaper articles came out and said that we could do it right they now. They no longer mm-hmm. have and, to stop. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And that's not actually true. Technically, it doesn't change until the 1st of January. So just if anybody's out there getting ready to You still have two through. months to stop. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you've been practicing, so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> well, it is my sincere hope that traffic law enforcement actions to enforce the stop sign law in Oregon through December 31st, 2019, will have stopped in favor of more productive law enforcement behavior 
once our law yes. passed because there really is no reason to do it anymore, even though the law won't go into effect until January 1st. Yeah, it's like the it's like a lame duck period for our law or such. Um, I'd be curious, you mentioned bill sponsors. What sort of importance do sponsors play within the overall passage of a bill? Uh, and, and sort of how do, what does that process look like? Well, I think it's probably, you know, the the key thing to get something passed, don't you, Ray, to, to find the right sponsor who's going to be willing to fight for the bill when you when you come up against headwinds. Yeah, it is, and it, that's absolutely true. And fortunately for us, um, we had both a, 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 a Republican and a Democratic sponsor when we were uh, starting this thing, it, which did carry us far. And they were both uh, active bicycle riders. Finding folks who are actually involved in bicycling, who understand what it's like on the road, sure does help in the legislature. If you were to uh, take another go at at uh, more more bike legislation, per example, uh, is there anything that you have learned from this process that you feel like you'd like to apply or maybe do differently if you were to take up another um you know, piece of agenda. Well, I mean, another important thing after you, after you find a sponsor is that, uh, it's, it's actually really easy for a bill to get killed, uh, in either a committee or just by the, uh, the leader of either the house or the Senate and just basically not allowing it to come to a vote. Um, so you have to be really careful about, uh, what committee you go into too. And you don't really get to pick, but you can, kind of guide it towards where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really important to understand before you even start the session like who who else might be somewhat supportive of this and what what's it has to go through, you know, you're going to have to get passed out of a committee. So you've got to find a committee that is going to be supportive um you know, otherwise I think the first year we did it, you know, we had that we had that committee and there was some testimony, but I think in the end the chair of the committee decided not to allow us to have a vote. And I remember there was a year with the uh, the fixie break law, uh, where they had the votes, but the uh, the chair of the house or the senate I can't remember which uh, decided not to allow it to come to a vote. So they were going to vote to require breaks on fixies. Uh, well, so the law had been interpreted that you had to have a handbrake on a fixed gear. Okay. And there was, uh, I think that was that was probably Jason Atkinson as well who was sponsoring that bill to define the um you know the chain to wheel connection as a brake um so that you wouldn't have to have an extra external handbrake mm. um and my memory is that they had passed it on one side and that it was ready to get voted on and they just uh, it just got killed well another uh, another thing that is um makes it difficult to engage in legislative efforts is that you can't control the news cycle and i i think uh Bjorn mentioned that there had been some negative press that befell us. And a lot of times when these stories come out, they are um, based upon misunderstandings of what the law is that we're trying to, to um, put forth. And we, you may not remember, but we had also uh, tried and almost succeeded, and we did it in two separate legislatures, in trying to get a hand signal bill passed for pedestrians so that pedestrians could uh, raise a hand to make the car stop before they Ooh. entered the killing zone. 
Nice. And it was, uh, and we felt like it was an excellent uh, step forward for vulnerable users. But when we were kind of in the trenches on it, um, somebody uh, did a cartoon that made it look like a, a silly thing that uh, people would be doing, and it just put the it just put the kibosh on us and and stopped us in our tracks. So we, you don't really have uh, control over how people are going to look at what it is that you're putting forward, and uh, I think the difference between our first two efforts and this most recent successful effort is that this time we had a supermajority in the legislature and we had a proponent who was really determined to uh, put his political chips on the table, and that was um, Floyd Brzezanski. Yeah, I mean, he really worked the bill both in the Senate, which he's a senator, but then also over in the House and was— very present for testimony and, and really on top of it. Um, and then we did have the advantage of, uh, you know, when things got a little bit rough, uh, half of the Senate had left the state and people were a little focused on other things in the media. So mm. there wasn't a lot of attention on the bill. <laughs> oh, <issue. yeah>. Yes. <laughs> kind of like not direct, but it played to your favor. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I was working on another bill that was, in this same recent legislature, that was uh, in uh, many people's mind a no-brainer, and that was the bill to make bicycle lanes continue through intersections even though the paint was not laid down in the intersection. And anybody who has a brain in their head can see that um, we just have chaos if we had to put paint through intersections to make bike lanes continue all the way across the cross-traffic places. And when I was in that bill's hearing and work session, legislators were actually getting confused that that bill was the Idaho stop. Oh, Oh. really? Yes. And those seem so different. They're so completely different. And I felt like we even got the downdraft from the negative views toward the Idaho stop in our little bike lane clarification bill because some of the anti-legislators were saying it's just more special rights for bicyclists that are going to make them behave in a way that's more dangerous. And I just thought, you know, there's only one way to get a bill through the legislature. There are 150 ways to have it fail, to get it through Ah. None of those 150 have to trip you up in order to get it through. You just you can only get it through that one way. And it just goes to show how vulnerable these little efforts are, particularly when what you have here is a situation where there was no big oil lobby. The Chamber of Commerce was not behind us. The Trucking Association did not throw their lobbying weight behind us. This was really a populist effort. Yeah. And it was based upon, an, a, I call it an evolution in the vehicular laws. Hmm. Speaking of the evolution of vehicular laws, uh, how many states have Idaho stop? And sort of what does that look like 
in Oregon's passage in regards to the ability for states to pass that in the future. And is one of those states still Idaho? Uh, it is. So Idaho's, uh, you know, has never wavered. I, I, it, it's an Since interesting. The 80s. That's, yeah, it's that's an, so great that it's been around that long, too. Yeah. And you talk to people from Idaho and they don't view it as a big deal. Um, and which is when I first started this, I did not think it was going to be nearly so hard to pass in part yeah. because it it is what a lot of people already do. And, it you know, we had an example of where this had been working in another state for 30 years. It just seemed like it would kind of naturally happen. And it you know, it turned out to be a bigger lift than we thought. But other states that have it, um, Delaware passed it recently. Um, I believe it's Alabama, right? Yeah, Arkansas, Arkansas actually did. And when Arkansas passed it, um, here you've got uh, Idaho, Republican state, Delaware, home of every renegade corporation in America, practically, <laughs> and the progressive state of Arkansas all somehow getting this law passed. And when we talked to Senator Przanski about it, he said, if they can do it in those, st- if in those states, we ought to be able to do it in Oregon because those are not bastions of cyclists' rights. The reason it passed in those states is because it really makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and there has been quite an effort in Utah. It got really close to passing in Utah several times. And I I think that's probably the next state that will pass it just because they they you know, they were within a few votes one of the years. Oh, wow. And they've, it, they've got some folks who are running behind it over the long term, it sounds like. Yeah, I think there's some there's some people that are interested in pushing it forward there. So. I, I think I could fairly say that this law is now uh, could be accurately uh, uh, termed a national trend in the development of bicycle law. Interesting. So, like, now that Oregon has it, and once Utah has it, you think, like, everyone else will just sort of, like, fall in line. Well, I think bicycle advocates in these other states are realizing how important it is. Yeah. And when we started out today, I said that one of the reasons I was attracted to it is because I thought that it would help us us bicyclists so much in the courtroom. And that's because... um, one of the things that as a bicycle lawyer for 40 years I deal with is that many jurors look upon bicyclists as folks who, um, now these are motorists, uh, not bicyclist jurors primarily, uh, but people who have a motor vehicle-centric view of things, that bicyclists want all their legal rights and are very strident in demanding them but are not willing to follow the basic laws that yes. apply to all of us. And I hear that just about every day in my workplace, yeah. Absolutely, and that's, and that's why I felt like um, this stop sign law is, is uh, presently pre-Idaho stop, goofy. Why should a person engage in the needless rubbing off of brake pad and uh, wheel material in order to stop when it's completely unnecessary or do anything more than slow down sufficiently to yield to tra- traffic that has a superior right-of-way. It, and then have to do all the work associated with getting the mass of that vehicle, that bicycle started again. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I could uh, help get this law changed, then what it would mean would be just one less thing that... Uh, 
anti-bicycle forces would be able to point at. A pretty vivid example because everybody that I've ever talked to about it has firmly in their mind these images of bicyclists running stop signs that we could say, well, actually, our legislature decided that a better way to have the Oregon Vehicle Code uh, proceed is with this Idaho stop, and it's actually safer. It doesn't make bicyclists more dangerous. It makes the vehicles behave in a cooperative manner more safely with fewer injuries and deaths. That's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. One of the things that I think actually was kind of cool about how long it took was that as we kept trying and working on it, we started to build up kind of a a binder of material. So uh, Ray mentioned Jason Meggs, who did this study at the uh, at Berkeley um, that showed the safety aspects. And then also we had like Spencer Boomauer made a, uh, a video for us that was really, really helpful with trying to explain to people that maybe aren't bicyclists or aren't familiar with the concept of what it actually means. And, um, and so then recently I've, I've been contacted by people in Michigan and some other places around the country, you know, talking about the national trend who are looking to pass this and been able to pass those, you know, materials oh, right onto on. them yeah. so that they can use them when they're trying to, to change their laws. It's kind of like, here you go, learn from our mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And on. So, yeah. and I think like that, that, um, public health study was really important this year because yeah. there were a lot of safety concerns in the house committee and I was able to forward that study to those House members so that they could see that there really wasn't anything to worry about from a safety point of view. Do you know what the stats were for Idaho after that passed in terms of uh, safety or, or reduction in harm? Well, so they uh, the, when the study looked at it, they they did see a slight decrease actually in injury rate, but I, I don't think it was statistically significant. But okay. what they really found was that there was no change. It wasn't like this Armageddon where all of a sudden people started to get hurt. And I think gotcha. the, the reason for that's obvious, right? None of us want to get hit by a car. <laughs> right. So we're still being careful at these intersections. Yeah. I think as Ray had said on our on our previous prior recording, uh, cyclists tend to be self-preserving. Well, and, and if you're a, a student of the law, what you want to do, I think, is to legalize safe behavior that people want to engage in anyway, not make it illegal. And to make it so that if it does have to be legal, you you do that as infrequently as possible. Um, and here, it just, the, the whole concept just had really common sense and safety going for it. And, you know, one of the things that I heard in one of the hearings was that well, but how are you going to teach young people to do this? And somebody else came back and said, well, you ought to take a look at the uh, bicycle riding training materials that they've developed in Idaho for young people because they do a pretty darn good job. <laughs> and uh, we'd be able to, we'll, be able to, we'll be able to use those here in Oregon too. Yeah. In the time that you were both involved, uh, what what kind of kept you going? What what kept the drive there to really see these through? Because these are very like sometimes yeah, abstract but very long endeavors. Yeah, uh, if we're talking what two thousand and six. You said was like yeah. The first so I, mean, go it, at it. I was working on it for more than a decade, yeah. and you know there was kind of there was a bit of a down period there. We we had a period for a little while where the executive director of of kind of the big bike organization in Oregon wasn't really a fan, and so we'd kind of learned from the past that as long as that was the case, there was very little chance of, uh, of it, right. us getting it passed. But I still kept talking to people about it 
And I think um, this year when that, that had changed and we had some new leadership, um, kind of checked in with them and they were supportive. And so I felt like it was the right time to make another run at it and talk to Floyd. Um, but I think for me, it was just, I don't know, you work on something long enough, you kind of start to identify yourself with it. And <laughs> so you just don't want to let it die, you yeah. know? And, and so that was kind of what kept me going. I don't know, Ray, what about you? Well, I have a confession to make. I was discouraged. <laughs> and I, I was discouraged by trying so hard uh, to pass this uh, two different times. And it had been, uh, as Bourne mentioned, uh, tried uh, earlier and had been unsuccessful. And coupled with the, the hand signal work that we, uh, the hand signal bill work that we had uh, done that had not passed. I was discouraged about these two legislative reforms, and I the I got back into this because I was inspired by uh, Born just not being willing to give up, and it was still a good idea. And uh, when I saw that uh, Prozansky uh, had been inspired by the passage of the bill in Arkansas and Delaware, I began to think that it really had a chance, and. Uh, I just decided to do whatever I could to help. Yeah, and I think the other thing, you know, people in the community kind of nudging you along helps a lot too. Um, one of the things that kind of kicked me into like talking to Floyd um, last January to see if he was willing to take another run at it was uh, my friend Garrick was sort of like, hey, you know, it's super majority this year. This this could be the year that you might actually be able to do this. Mm. And it, it did kind of plant the seed with me of like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's true. And that said, we, we did need some Republican support to get yeah. it passed. Um, and I think a lot of these bike things, you really have to be able to get a bipartisan effort because you're going to get a few um, Democrats who aren't real interested in, in helping. Um, so it is important to find people on both sides that want to push these things forward. And, and that was Garrett Kransky, who was our legislative uh, staffer uh, at uh, Street Trust. Yeah, yeah. towards the end of, of the, the last uh, legislative session, he was the guy. Gotcha. So that first, I think the first time we did it, it was Carl uh, Road, who also did a, did a real good job. Um, in so much bike legislation, like we have what it's like to cycle in Portland, and then we have what it's like to cycle in places in Oregon that aren't necessarily Portland. Do you think that one of the... Uh, I guess maybe not most difficult things, but do you think that there's definitely a factor of like the urban rural divide that comes to play when cycling legislation is talked about or, or sort of um, supposed? Well, I'd like to speak to that. I can tell you that that's um, been a moving target. Um, there was a time and the uh, maybe a decade ago when we were, passing these uh, common sense reforms in the bicycle law that were actually improving the Oregon Vehicle Code. Things like uh, allowing people to pass on the right when it's safe to do so, uh, passing exceptions to the mandatory side path law of bicycle lanes so that you could leave the bicycle lane, for example, when there was an obstacle there or when it was unsafe to ride in the bicycle lane. And these were things that made sense to even to somebody who would not consider themselves to be a bicycle advocate. But then as um, the politics changed and this 
urban-rural divide uh, became such that a symbol of the urban side of the divide was the Portland bicycle rider, uh, the lycra-clad, you know, yuppies or the people in all dark clothes who are, uh, you know, riding through lights and not wearing helmets and not the, wearing the lights at night. Elite, Absolutely. The elite. Yeah, elite, and the elite. Uh, and it yeah. was sort of the development of, mm-hmm. I don't even want to dignify it by calling it populist, um, this sort of negative view of uh, anything to do with bicycles. And that was sort of the initial uh, thing that I noticed and and I I felt like we were really uh, hitting some difficult waters when that happened. But then something happened, and what happened was that um, in our timber communities, uh, as our timber dollars reduced and somewhat dried up, um, tourist dollars began coming in, and many of those tourists who came here were people on bicycles. Yes. The and, development of the Oregon bikeways. Absolutely. Yes. And then as I appeared in the legislature and in front of juries, what I realized, too, was that folks who I kind of identified as people who were going to be against anything that had to do with bicycles actually had children, friends, uh, grandkids who were riding bikes. And so... Bicycling, I believe, became more mainstream than it had been before. The uh, urban-rural divide continued, and many of the same uh, folks who were sort of against anything that was associated with Portland bicycles, uh, I don't know how much they changed their attitudes, but I did notice that things were changing in a direction that made it easier to bring things in front of legislative legislators on in hearings. And I think that we in in Oregon anyway, I think we've passed the worst of that time. And I'm glad I'm glad to be able to say that. Yeah, I think wow. it's it's also important to frame things um the right way. I think if you if you frame something like this as a way to encourage people to bicycle to fight climate change, the, you're going to alienate a certain group yeah. of people that there's no reason to do that, down a right? little too you know, much. and so you just okay. kind of try to focus on the broad positive aspects that have a wider appeal. Mm-hmm. Or maybe reframe climate change to say um valuing our natural resources but meaning the same thing in a different way perhaps. Yeah. Uh it's interesting like from the I guess, legal perspective or the perspective in that change at times seems either very slow or very fast, depending on the context in which it's happening. Uh, Do you two have sort of insight into kind of the pace uh, or the change that's happened over time? Like, where do you see that happening more quickly? Where do you think it's more slow? Because you mentioned the urban-rural divide. I'm just curious, um, just kind of over your experience over the past 40 years, uh, like, are we doing better at making smarter decisions more often? Well, I think what's happened, from my perspective, is that a whole new generation of urban planners, of traffic engineers, have um, gotten involved in government. And so we now have uh, bicycle infrastructure and facilities that bicycle and pedestrian coordinate coordinators at the community level are promoting actively 
and selling to their cities and towns and counties. We're also seeing within ODOT a more uh, welcoming atmosphere to alternative forms of transportation. And I think that uh, while this may change, um, I think that we are in somewhat of a sweet spot. And one thing I think is been we've been fortunate to have is that there are so many good European models that our uh, traffic professionals are able to look to and see on the ground in these in these countries and communities how these things can be incorporated which will make uh, children and the elderly and uh, women riders who were previously afraid to ride, feel more confident and more willing to take that first step to maybe try uh, riding to work or to school or to the community center uh, than uh, before. Yeah, I'm really hopeful for the future because I feel like when I when I first started this, I had some friends who right about then were graduating from like planning school. And initially, you know, there was always talk of like, you know, we want to do this, but the next person higher up above me isn't into it. And now I'm seeing those people move into that position. And I feel like that's where we're starting to see a lot more success around some of the ways we're laying out our cities. Mm. If you had uh, any parting advice to somebody looking to undertake a bicycle initiative in their own state, uh, what would that be? Or what, what would that look like? Well, I would say get a hold of Bourne and uh, <laughs> have him take you to school on how his perseverance uh, led to this happening because when I uh, found out that this had been revived and really had a chance, I asked Senator uh, Przanski's staffer, how was it that you had this idea come up again? And they said, oh, it was somebody in Portland, but they couldn't remember the person's name. So um, I asked him to take a look at it because I wanted to, I wrote an article um, that is called, uh, how we got Idaho stop a brief history of Oregon efforts to enact the Idaho stop. And I wanted to find out what was the, what was, you know, who lit the fuse on this, this time. And they found it. And it was an email from uh, Bourne to Senator Przanski saying some of the things that he's told us today about how this looks to be something like it has maybe legislative legs in some other States. It might be time, uh, to bring it back to Oregon and maybe it could even pass this time. And that's, that's how it happened. It was that email from him uh, to this Senator who was looking for a project that made it all happen. And I think in other States, if people can take some of these good materials we've developed, they can use them too. Yeah, and I guess my advice would be that, you know, some of this stuff can be uh, pretty disappointing and demoralizing sometimes. So do it with friends. And then, you know, even if you don't win, it can be fun and you keep going. Awesome. Bjorn and uh, Ray, thank you so much for taking the yeah, time to you. talk with us today. All right. Thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. Having us. Um, do you want to give any special thanks or shout outs to folks who've helped you? Speaking of friends along the road. Um, yeah, I guess uh, maybe we'll just uh, do one to uh, Michael Ronkin, who's the former... Uh, um, ODOT bike and pedestrian coordinator, um, uh, kind of the d- designed the route down the coast and just done a lot of, did a lot of work. And I knew him when I was growing up and he is, uh, provided a lot of inspiration to me for thinking about, thinking about these things in these ways. 
I'd like to thank Doug Perrow from the Bicycle Transportation and um, uh, Legislative Committee. He was an inspiration to me and uh, somebody who was not a lawyer and came up with uh, lawyerly ideas like no lawyer I had ever met. <laughs> right on. Nice. Um, and then lastly, if folks want to find out what either of you are up to or working on, uh, is there a good place that they can do that at? Or if they needed to contact you for these materials. Um, they can uh, look on our website, which is tcnf.legal, and uh, check it out. Uh, we have these materials available, and as well as our uh, bicycle law book, uh, Pedal Power, for uh, free download. It's just uh, there as PDFs. And if people are looking to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter, at Bjorn Warlow. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, as always, thanks to the beer mongers on Southeast Division and 12th. Um, I've got a tasty kombucha today. Yum. As I, always. I've got a Ex Novo Elliot India Pale Ale. What have you got, Bjorn? I'm, I'm going to make you hop back I, on mic for a sec. <laughs> I have a fearless brewing company, Loki Red Ale. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thanks, as always, to our one and only sponsor of that nature, the Beer Mongers. The Beer Mongers on Southeast Division and 12th. And thank you to all of you who have donated over the years, past and present and possibly future. And Indeed. those who haven't donated and are listening, thank you for tuning in. For lending us your ears. Yes. Um, shall we hit it? Don't don't ever use that. Don't worry. We'll continue to use that. <laughs> as we do Speaking each of which, Mr. Tim Mooney might be in town coming soon. That's true. The big five zero zero. <laughs> oh yeah, that's coming up. It is coming Episode up. Episode five hundred. It took a while, but we're getting there. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, eight eight years later, nine years later, of which I've only been a small part, but Kudos to those who've carried the torch. Um, yeah, we're going to have Brock and, and Aaron Jim and, and Tim. And whoever wants to join in. You know what? Open invitation. Already. Just, just come on out. We'll put on the shift, Cal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> that, that would be that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, <laughs> we have a calendar. The second Thursday of every month is the Joyful Riders Club in Minneapolis. I don't have my notes on me right now. The first Friday of every month, the San Francisco Bike Party. And the second Friday of every month, the Boston Bike Party. Also the second Friday of every month, the Indianapolis Bike Party. And also also the second Friday of every month, the East Bay Bike Party. The last Friday of every month, the Baltimore Bike Party. The first Saturday of every month, the Civil Unrest Ride. The first Saturday of every month is the Civil Unrest Ride, and you just said that. The second Sunday of every month we can say it twice. in Portland, the Corvidi Bike Club Ride. And upcoming Film by Bike tour dates are Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, November 20th, Ashland, Oregon, December 4th, Bendigo, Australia, I'm wearing your shirt today, December 4th, Seattle, Washington, November 28th, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, again, 22nd. Yeah, they're That's killing so it. Great, they're absolutely killing it. Well, we don't have any headlines today. But... Oh. oh, I forget that we got a closing for that now. 
and we don't have headlines, as Aaron was mentioning. <laughs> but you know what we do well, have? We do have. We got mail. Hey, we got mail. And we got a voicemail. Hey, guys. It's Mac Nurse David. I wanted to call and say that um, it has felt like coming home to listening to you when I was listening to you guys for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I switched to being a home health nurse back last December, and so I had to get a car, and I've been driving around and not biking as much and uh, hadn't been listening to you guys as much. I started listening again, and it's just got me fired up again, so much so that I rode from my house to Gateway Green with the kids on the back of my big dummy after not doing anything like that for literally months. So 10 miles, well, 125 pounds of living cargo was a little bit rough. But Gateway Green is amazing. I highly recommend it to everyone. I got to watch my kids fearlessly bomb down some downhill tracks with their uh, mountain bikes. And I just wanted to let you guys know how much I appreciate you. Uh, Hopefully I'll get to see you out soon at one of these events. Mac Nurse David, signing out. Thanks, Mac Nurse David. It's good to hear from you. Um, yeah, well, we're happy that you are able to ride a bike again for the first time in a while. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that said, and I, I think I've, I've said this even to Magner's David in person, but I will say this electronically or over the electrical systems, um, to anybody like there, there is no bike ride that is too short. Yeah. Definitely. You know, even if you just ride down to the end of the block and back just because you feel like it, hey, you've rode your bike, though. Yeah, every little bit counts. Uh, From Nathan Poulton, we have, where has the front mech gone? A picture on Twitter of a very frosty uh, front chain ring. Oh, yeah. I think think if you were referring to the front derailleur, uh, I would need to check. But it's it's a very uh, stark contrast to the sprocket sticker photo that we saw oh, yeah. a little bit ago because <laughs> there's some winter on that bike nice i'll say <laughs> thanks for sending that photo to us nathan uh and then uh, this is a little bit of an older tweet our apologies for missing the boat the first time around from chilly weather chilly heather listening to you all talking about figs when i just went on a fig scavenging group ride yesterday super fun uh so thanks for yeah. writing in i Hashtag fig week. Hashtag fig week. Yeah, gosh, I wish it was fig week right now. <laughs> I wish it was fig week every week. Um, so I'm guessing that tweet was maybe potentially from a episode a couple of, a month ago, perhaps. Um, we had talked about it, I want to say it was July, actually, yeah. is when we talked about figs. It's the first go around. We did yeah. We did get a second um, kind of bloom, oh, that's right. if you will. Yes. It, it, was, it was early October. It was 70% to 80% sweetness on average of our July bloom. And I actually ate a fig uh, two days ago when I was walking home. There was right like on. one tree that was still still had it going on. <laughs> it was not, It was a little past its prime. Oh, yeah. Um, but I did try that fig before setting it gently <laughs> on the sidewalk where it was going to end up anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, team fig. <laughs> right on. All the way. <laughs> and if you know of a fig tree in Portland that is still edible... <laughs> Oh my head. You can call or text 503-847-9774. Email at the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com. And hashtag fig alert. Hashtag fig alert. And I will totally go check it out because uh figs are delicious and they're much better when you get them off a tree. 
Uh, yeah, so thank you, Chilly Weather, Chilly Heather, for writing in. I uh, appreciate you letting us know about your fig ride. And thanks for listening. And that should... That's that it? it? That, that is it, isn't it? That's it. We've reached the end of all That's things. That's all. What would Banksy say? I don't know. Me neither. Banksy, tell us what you'd say. <laughs> all right, shall we do it? <laughs> We're going to get a tweet from Banksy. That's... <laughs> I'd be down. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Respect. Uh... Here we go. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at StreamPDX Community Audio Studio thanks to the generous support of Open Signal. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text 2503-847-9774. Twitter and the Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Kurt Bird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to our sustaining donors. Shadowfoot, Katharina Malamgard. Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Wise. Todd Parker, Dan Gebhardt, who's, who's a, a time, time traveler. traveler. Dave Knows. Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley. Peanut Butter Jar, Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom. Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, you'll be home soon. Andre Johnson, King of Division, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, who's sitting right next to me. What? Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of the Regrainery. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Nathan Poulton. Thanks Chris, for writing. Thanks for writing. Chris Rawson, Rory of Michigan, Michael Flournoy. Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay, Tim Coleman. Harry Hugel, EJ Finneran, Brad Hipwell. Thomas Skato, Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom. Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Jason Oftenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore. Todd Grosbeck, Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris, Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon, Gregory Braithwaite, Ryan Morrow, Dude Luna, Matthew Rooks, Marshall, Paula at Funitake Cyclecraft, Philip M., Spartan Dale, no relation, Mr. T., who never really left, Bike Initiative, Kiwana, Sarah G., Adam D., Go Dig a Hole, Beth Hammond, who I saw yesterday, nice running into you. Nice. Greg Murphy, and our newest donor, Mayra Martinez. Thank you so much for your support. And all of our former donors who helped us get this far, now brush our teeth and go to bed.